Our text this morning that we will focus on is Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8. An additional verse, what we have here in your bulletin, you get an extra verse for the price this morning. What I would like us to do, so we get the context of this, is I'll be reading Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, the next two weeks, this week and next week. So let us now turn to the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would write these words upon our heart. We ask, O Lord, that even as you, by your Spirit, worked through the Apostle Paul to make such a personal, intimate description of his relationship with you and all that it means because of Christ Jesus, that you would work in our hearts this way, O Lord, that you would bless us this morning, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would encourage us of the work that Jesus Christ has done, that you might enliven us and invigorate us, O Lord, that we might grasp on to that work. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I know we have several here this morning. I won't go through and name each of you. But this passage here, in addition to being one of the most famous passages in the Bible, is also an accountant's dream. It's a place in the Bible where Paul uses accounting language to describe the pluses and the minuses, the credits and the debits, and what that means in terms 
of the Christian life. It's important to keep track of these things, as any good accountant will tell you, even if he only gets an opportunity to tell you around tax time. We had an opportunity to see this as I was sort of a red-headed stepchild to accountants, an attorney formerly. And we were having the opportunity to buy our first home. And we went to the closing. Many of you have done this. You sit and a blizzard of paper is thrown at you. Sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. And for many of us, we just sign as quickly as we can to get out and go enjoy our home. Well, that's not quite how a lawyer works. When you're a lawyer, you read everything. Even the little teeny tiny print on the bottom. And I had the opportunity not only to be an attorney, but I was heavily involved in real estate at that time in my life. And so to the dismay of the closing agent who probably wanted us out there as quickly as most of you, I sat and read the entire closing statement. And as I came down, I looked at something and I said, this doesn't, this doesn't match up. She said, well, what do you mean? And I said, there's a, there's a $500 charge here. And she said, of course there's a $500 charge here. That's for this third party that did such and such. And I said, I understand that, but that's a seller's charge, not a buyer's charge. You've got it in the wrong column, and you've just cost me $1,000. So I would like it if you would put it in the correct column so that things can read as they're supposed to. She looked at it, apologized got out her computer and printed out a new sheet. And we were very happy. My wife, because we'd saved $1,000. And me, because I'd had an opportunity to use my new lawyer skills for something <laughs> approaching a practical benefit. Now, that's, that's a humorous story. And it's even more humorous because it's $500. It would be less humorous if the error was $10,000 or $10 million. Or to use current government terms, maybe a trillion dollars. Soon we start talking about real money. And we start to get very serious about things. It doesn't become as humorous. Well, you see, when we talk about credits and debits with money, it's one thing. But when we talk about credits and debits as they affect our eternal destiny, it's quite another thing entirely. And you see, Paul wants to make sure that we are listing the proper credits and debits and that we are relying upon our proper standing before God. And so this morning, Paul will play the accountant for us. He will tell us where we should be trusting, what we should be looking at, and how we balance our books properly. And so this morning, then, I would like us to look first, as Paul describes, inherited debits. There are debits on Paul's account and very likely on yours as well, that are inherited. They are inherited debits. But there are other types of debits as well. There are debits that are earned, not just ones that we inherit or come to us by birth, but rather there are debits that we earned, earned debits. And then finally, Paul will describe for us the great exchange and how the books get balanced and how the great balancer is the Lord Jesus Christ. So then let us look, let us put our pencils in our hand and our calculators with tape next to us, and let's look and see 
where our credits and debits lie. The first debit that Paul describes here in verse 4 is confidence in the flesh that comes by being circumcised on the eighth day. Let me just for a moment back up here and remind you of the context of where we are. Paul has just been telling us that we are the true circumcision, not the Judaizers. And those who glory in the flesh, those who have confidence in the flesh are wrong. And we ought to, you'll recall, using our VBS language, have no confidence in the flesh at all. Not any bit at all. And then Paul says, well, you might get an objection. Someone might look at you, dear Philippian, and say, well, that's all well and good for you to say, but you don't come from a long line of covenant people. You're just a Christian, a Gentile Christian at that. You know, your great-grandfather didn't form, he was not a part of the founding members of First Baptist or First Presbyterian wherever. If you really had that kind of history, you would understand what it means to place confidence in this. And Paul says, you may get that objection, and let me tell you how I deal with it. If they think they have confidence in the flesh, if anybody that you know, if anybody in the world would have confidence in the things of the flesh, right here, it's me. Let me give you my resume. It's a couple of pages long. And the first issue is that I was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, I don't want to place confidence in that. Now, what does that mean? Circumcision was the procedure that was done on male boys on the eighth day in which they were given the sign of the covenant that had been passed down from Abraham. And to be circumcised on the eighth day was not merely to be given the covenant sign. It was to be given the covenant sign in the perfect fashion. You see, it might be possible to be circumcised on the ninth day or the tenth day. Or perhaps like Ishmael in the thirteenth year. But you see, Paul says, I received the covenant sign at exactly the right time in exactly the right way. My parents followed the law perfectly. Not only was I circumcised, Paul says, My guess is that I was circumcised in a more biblical fashion than all of these Judaizers, or many of them. Anyone who proselytized and was circumcised, they didn't do it as well as I did. I was an Israelite from birth. I was a part of God's covenant people. Now, circumcision was more than just merely a marking more than just merely a simple operation. It marked or set one aside as a part of the covenant community. You see, what Paul is saying is, I was a part of the community of God from the day I was born. I didn't wander in as a stranger. I didn't have to play catch-up. I didn't have to cram for an exam. From the very day I was born, I was a part of the covenant community of God. This also applies to us. Yes, even the ladies among us. Because you see, it is possible for us to look to the covenant community and to find our meaning and our salvation there. Salvation by ecclesiology. Salvation by being a part of the church. By being a part of the visible people of God. By saying, I was born into the church. My father was born into the church. 
My grandfather was born into the church. And because of that, I have a right standing before God. Now, I want you to notice something. Before, in the back of your mind, you start bashing church membership and saying, well, you know, being a part of a church isn't that important. Circumcision was a right commanded by God. It was not something that was immoral. It was not something that was wicked. Being a part of the covenant community of God is a command of God. You are commanded to be a part of the church. It is not optional. You cannot love Jesus and hate his bride. What Paul says is you cannot take something that is good or even biblical and use it to mark your standing before God. Good things do not get us into God's presence. You see, circumcision will not save you and baptism will not save you. It didn't save Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. He thought it might. And so he asked Peter to give him this power that he could save others by baptism. But you see, Paul says, in reality, this is a debit in the great transaction. As good and as biblical as circumcision or baptism or church membership is, when we use it to stand before God, it is a debit on our account. And then he goes on to describe a second inherited debit that he had. He says not only was he circumcised on the eighth day, he was of the people of Israel. And the word here for people is actually a very strong word. It's a word that's used to exclude anyone who came to Israel from outside. It's used to exclude any Gentile convert. You see, the Queen of Sheba is not of the people, in this sense, of Israel. You see, those who were in Philippi were not of the people of Israel. And quite frankly, perhaps many of the Judaizers were not of the people of Israel, of the stock of Israel, of the race of Israel. You see, Paul says, not only was I circumcised, I was born fully Jewish, of the people of God, the stock, the race, the nation of Israel. I can go back up through my genealogy, take out my family tree, and when I'm done, I will find Jacob, Israel. I can do that, Paul says. He says, this is not something that we place before God as a credit as something that we can say that God has worked through us because of who we are by birth. You see, it was tempting for the Judaizers to take the line from the hymn that we sang this morning and to say God's chosen race was a physical race. It was something that you inherited from your father, grandfather, and so on. And Paul says, no. If anyone could glory in physicality, it would be me. Because I am Jewish through and through. I'm not a proselyte. I'm not a latecomer. And he presses this point home. He says, not only was I of the people of Israel, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Paul does this in another place as well. And you may wonder why he brings up the tribe of Benjamin. What's so important about Benjamin? Some of you may be sitting and saying, well, it's not like he was from Judah. You know, Judah is the line of Christ. So what's so big about Benjamin? Well, let's think about 
what it meant to be a Benjamite. Benjamin was the second son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, wasn't he? He was also the one who was born during her death. She died in childbirth. And so Benjamin became incredibly dear and close to Jacob. So close to Jacob that it caused, along with Joseph, friction in his household. It was one of the things that actually drove his other sons to attempt to murder Joseph. That was how much worth and stock Jacob placed in Benjamin simply for who he was. Benjamin was also the only one of the 12 sons to actually be born in the promised land. His tribe could actually claim that they had always lived in the promised land from the very first day that Benjamin was born. No other tribe could claim that. Not even Judah. Not even Joseph. As a result, we see throughout the Bible that there are special privileges given to the tribe of Benjamin. If you go back through the book of Judges, looking specifically in chapter 5, you will see that when they set up the tribes in military formation, going through to conquer, just as we've been reading in the book of Joshua, sorry. Just as we've been reading in the book of Joshua, you'll see that Benjamin is at the very front of the battle line. They get the prime place in the battle line. They are the lead attack force. They are privileged in that sense. And then if we think about that, it's no surprise to us that the very first king comes from which tribe? Benjamin. You see, we think of David. But the very first king of Israel was whom? Saul. He was the one who was chosen to lead Israel. The very first king comes from this tribe. And don't let it be lost upon you that the name of Paul at birth was Saul. It's very likely that his parents gave him that name in tribute or perhaps seeking to honor Saul, thinking the best of Saul. This is the tribe of Benjamin. It's also the only tribe that stayed with Judah when the kingdom divided. Benjamin was a tribe that one would be proud to be a part of. It's the way in which at different places and in different times in America, we're proud to be Southern, or if I might be so bold, proud to be not only Italian, but Sicilian. If you don't know, there is a difference. And I will explain it to you at some point. This was a tribe in which there would be value. You could look back and say, you know, one of the great saviors of Israel was Mordecai. You remember we looked at that in the book of Esther. If you look back, you'll see that Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is a very big deal in Jewish circles. Paul is laying this all out. He says, well, listen, I'll see your Jewishness. And I'll raise you the stock of Israel and I'll double down on Benjamin. Can you match me? We can almost imagine the Judaizers getting a little bit nervous at this point. But Paul presses on. He says, not only do I have, could I have as credits religion, not only could I have my nationality, he says, I also have tradition on my side. Now, what does that mean? 
Many of you know, we've talked about this before, if you've seen any part of the famous musical Fiddler on the Roof, you know at least the portion where Tevye yells tradition and there's the Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition was very important to the Jews. And Paul says, let me tell you, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now you scratch your head and you say, well, wait a minute, Paul, you just told us you're of Israel and you just said that you're from the tribe of Benjamin. What does this mean, Hebrew of Hebrew? Does this mean you eat Hebrew franks? Does this mean that you... What is this about? The fact that Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews would be of great significance at this time in the world. You see, generally speaking, the Jews were broken up into two types of Judaism. There were the Hellenistic Jews, kind of like Helen of Troy. You might remember it that way. The Hellenistic Jews were those who had a Greek background. When they opened their Bibles to the book of Isaiah, they couldn't read the Hebrew text. They had to go to the Greek translation. They couldn't speak Hebrew. They wouldn't know all of the traditions. They grew up in cities that were largely pagan. And so they were Greek-ish Jews. Almost more like Greeks than ancient Israelites. And you see, Paul says, that's not true of me. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was taught from the very first to speak the language of God, to speak the language of the Scriptures, Hebrew. If some of you are wondering what we will speak in glory, there's at least several Old Testament professors I know that say it will be Hebrew. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that that is the language in which God encapsulated His Word all of the extent word that would be at the time that this letter is written. So Hebrew, the language is important. Paul was brought up and he was trained. Now, I want you to remember a little bit about Paul's history. Was Paul born in Jerusalem? No, he wasn't, was he? He was born in a little backwater town called Tarsus. It was actually a very Roman town. It was outside the promised land. It was Gentile country. It was Hellenistic country. And you see, Paul says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, even though I was not born in Jerusalem. Let me tell you, my parents kept all of the strictest traditions. They kept a kosher home. They kept a kosher language. And they had a kosher education. You see, Paul was sent right away to Jerusalem itself, to be trained in the temple under the greatest teacher in the world at that time for the Jews. He studied under Gamaliel. He had the best education possible, better than any academy, better than any homeschool co-op. They sent him to the religious man of their day. And Paul learned in detail every law, every commandment, every comment on every law, every comment on commandment. Paul received the best education possible. And this would, of course, be a certain level of pride to his family. Here they are, they're living outside of Jerusalem, and they can say that they are Hebrews of Hebrews, the most Jewish of folks. Here, too, there is a warning for us. Now, you may not be saying, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
You may not even be able to say, I am a Texan of Texans. Many of us have those bumper stickers that say, not born in Texas, got here as quick as we could. You see, but we are tempted to place our own value and worth in traditions. You see, we've memorized the best version of the Bible from our youth. We know how to use all of the proper intonations for these hard Greek and Hebrew names. We've had the best education. We've tried to make the most godly, most intellectual, most academic, most practical education that is possible. These things are good things. But they are not things that we place before God. You see, these are things that we might think are credits. But in reality, they are debits. You see, when we say that God must love us, that God must accept us because of our religion, because of our nationality, because of who our parents are, or because of the traditions that we have kept, we are pushing ourselves away from God. These are not credits. They're inherited debits. Paul says, lest you think that it only was because of my parents that I might have reason to have confidence in the flesh, let me tell you about what I did when I was big enough to walk and talk. He says, I have earned certain things as well. I have earned things that you might think are credits, but are actually debits. I'm not only of the tribe of Benjamin, not only a Hebrew of Hebrews, but as to the law, I am a Pharisee, or I was a Pharisee. Now, the language here in these next three phrases, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless, are very staccato phrases. They're prepositional phrases. As to this, a Pharisee. As to that, that. As to this, that. Paul's running down the list. You can almost imagine he's getting out his pencil and ticking off all of the potential ways you could earn credit before God. And the first thing that he addresses is morality. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, we need to think about Pharisees in the entire context of the Scripture because, for the most part, our impression of the Pharisees is that they were wicked, hypocritical, sinful men. And in the main, that's true, especially as they respond to our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not how Phariseeism began. Phariseeism began with the best of intentions. It began with men looking around and saying, our world is a cesspool. Look at what these people write about. Look at how those ladies dress. Look at how those men speak. Look at what's going on in our culture. We've got to do something about it. Where can we find how to fix this culture? Wait. In the Bible. Let's go through the Bible and find every commandment that God has given and let's categorize them and let's memorize them and let's follow them as closely as is physically possible. You see, Phariseeism began as a separation from a corrupt, sinful, ugly culture. When you describe Phariseeism that way, we become a little bit more prone to Phariseeism, don't we? As we look about and we see 
all of the filth in theaters and on television, as we see the lies that come out in print, as we see how people treat each other, we want to be separate. Now, if you don't think this is the case, you haven't been to a Christian bookstore lately where you can buy Christian books and listen to Christian music and buy Christian bookmarks to put in your book and buy Christian knickknacks to put on a Christian shelf to drink Christian coffee out of a Christian verse mug. And you see, the the thought there is to separate as much as possible from everything that is real and in the world. Again, a good thing gone awry. You see, because then we begin to say, well, God must love me because, look, I have a Holy Grounds mug. And I drink coffee that's been ground up at a store where people say Bible verses as they grind the coffee. God must love me. God loves me because I only play Christian music. And not just on Sunday. I don't listen to the radio at all. And I only have explicitly Christian lyrics when I listen to music. I wouldn't listen to Mozart. Beethoven? Come on. And you see, we start thinking that that is our standing before God. Now, should we go out and listen to filth? Should we dress in a fashion that is sinful? No. But... We need to remember that God does not look upon us and say, Oh, I'm so proud of him. I love him so much because of the way he dresses. And I just, I love the way that he treats his family and his children. I think I'll save him. No, Paul says. This is something that we might think of as a credit, but it's actually a debit. You see, the Pharisees tried to live every detail of life in conformity to God. So I challenge you this morning, if you think that you can be right before God by controlling your environment and your life, I ask you, are you living every detail of your life in conformity with the Word of God? I don't just mean what you listen to. I don't just mean what you wear. I mean how you cut your hair, what you eat, what you do with every penny of your money, where you live who you talk to, every word you say. You see, as we start piling this up, we think there's no way we could possibly do this. As a matter of fact, as we come to the law through the eyes of Christ, we see that we are more sinful than we thought in the beginning because the law is so big and we are so small. And what we thought might be a credit is actually a debit because the law accuses us all day long. Didn't do this right. Didn't do that with the right heart. Didn't do this long enough. You left that undone. You did this. That's the place of the law. And if we try and earn our salvation before God by the law, it's really a debit, not a credit. Well, you might say to Paul, that's okay. I know I can't do everything all the time. But let me tell you, I'm very sincere about what I do. I try hard. I try to be a good person. I think through things. I try and be charitable. I'm active in my community. I try and do all that I can. And I'm not perfect, but I think God will look at me and he will say, you know, they gave it more than the college effort. Paul says, sorry, debit column. He says, as to zeal. Now, this word here for zeal is, it means energy, 
involvement, get up and go, take the lead. It doesn't just mean he's involved. It means Paul was at the head of the pack. Paul was writing the mission statement. And he says, as for zeal, let me tell you how zealous I was. I persecuted the church. Now, the word here for persecute is a very vivid word. It comes from a meaning that means to chase or to pursue. You kids ever played that game where you play tag and you run after someone? You're playing freeze tag. You're running, you're running, you're running around trees, and up and under and down hills, and in the house and out of the house. You're chasing, 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 trying to find that person to tag them. That's what this is like. It's not just being mean. It's being mean and pursuing and not giving up and going on and going forward. And you see, Paul says, that tells you what kind of zeal I had. Now, we look at this and we say, well, we don't like that kind of zeal, Paul. (laughs) Please stop persecuting the church. But it gets back to, again, Paul's point about our standing before God. You see, Paul says, I took the Bible so seriously. I took the Old Testament so seriously that some people, when they heard Jesus say, I am, got upset. When I heard his followers saying that, I wanted to kill them. That's how seriously I take the Bible and the laws in the Bible. I'm as serious as a heart attack. You see, Paul says, if there were any merit or value to be found in being sincere for God, even if sincerely wrong, it's me. And you see, as we look at this then, that takes away from us the option to be sincere about our standing before God. It's not enough to say, well, I followed Buddha, but I was very sincere and good about it. I'm sure God will accept that. No, he won't. Any more than he would accept Paul's zealousness or his sincerity. How did our Lord Jesus respond to Paul in Acts 9? Did he look at him and say, you know, Paul, I'm I'm glad you... Take charge of things. I'm glad you're sincere and zealous about the way you interact with my church, but I think you need to think about it from a different perspective. No. He said, Saul, why do you persecute me? You can't be sincerely wrong. The truth matters. Paul says, well... Not only did I earn debits through morality, not only did I earn debits through my sincerity, he says, if anybody could have earned through performance, I've got that one too. You notice he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, we look at this and we say, well, of course you can't earn righteousness by the law. How could anyone be blameless? Fred, you just told us we can't keep the law perfectly when you were talking about the Pharisees. You see, what Paul is saying here is not that he was perfect. He's saying, as to the respect of the righteousness that could be found under the law, I was blameless. As much as is possible, no one could have a case to place against me. If you could possibly get righteousness by the law, It's me. I'm at the head of the class. I'm the valedictorian. If it were at all possible to earn our way to salvation, Paul would be there first. Now, of course, we look back and we say, 
well, Paul, why are you laying all this out? Are you saying we can earn salvation by our works? Look with me again at verse 3. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, Paul says, we, and that we includes Paul, put no confidence in the flesh. And all of these things I'm listing, I'm telling you, are worthless. I can't put any confidence at all in them. And let me tell you why. He's going to describe for us a great exchange that happens. He says the first thing is you haven't truly valued things. Things that you think are a credit are actually a debit. You see, when he says these things are gains, if anyone else thinks he has confidence, if anyone else thinks gain that was what he had in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, the gain there is actually plural. Again, our accountants will know this. It's not the sum that Paul's talking about. It's each individual item. He says, you know, the column with rows 1 through 68, every single one of those... I counted his gain. And when I came back to value them, they were loss. They were something that I didn't even realize it. I had this experience as well when I was an attorney. I was involved in the sale of a very large steel company. And one of the things that the steel company owned were several parcels of property. And they had them in their asset column. It was a part of the value that they thought they should get money for. And then the buyer did some due diligence and found out that there were a few environmental issues on these properties. These properties quickly went from being assets to liabilities. They couldn't get rid of them. They had to pay or deduct to to the buyer in order to make them take the property. Because, you see, this property they thought had value was actually a liability. It was going to cost the buyer money to clean up this property. And oftentimes that's how we view our lives. All of the things that we go through and think are gain. God says, if you view them that way, they're actually a liability. Paul says this. And if you don't remember anything else this morning, here's a good one-sentence tag to remember. It's not just our rags that are filthy before God. It is our riches. It is our obedience. Our prayer life is filth before God outside of Christ. Our Bible reading and memorization is filth before Christ. Our actual keeping of the law, not just the attempts, is filth before God outside of Christ. The things that we think outside of Christ get us closer to God, push us further away. And Paul says, whatever it could possibly be that you could think of, this is loss. It's not gain. It's not even neutral. It's loss. He uses an accounting term. It's a debit. It's a debt that has to be paid. And that's the true valuation of our lives. And what Paul says is, if we are going to be right before God, we must give up to get. And that's why this testimony is so personal. It's one of the most personal testimonies in all of the Bible. And I want you to notice that the we of verse 3, we are the true circumcision. 
becomes the I of verse 7 and verse 8. Paul is a part of the we. Paul is a part of the people placing no confidence in the flesh. It's very personal. And what Paul says is you must give up all. Not just some. Not just the things that you don't like. Not just the things you think God will only give you half credit for. You must give up everything. Because it is only by the rejection of effort that we reach God. It is not by effort. You must take everything that you have, everything that is valuable to you, everything that you think makes you important, and you must give it up to God in order to gain the kingdom. You cannot go into the kingdom of God with semi-full hands. You must, with open hands, cling to the cross. Our Lord gets this point across in Matthew 13. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there with me briefly. Two parables that describe the way we are to treat the sum of our life. In verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven here is described as God's rule and reign. We might even think of it as salvation itself. His rule and reign in our lives. So the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells how much? All that he has. And he buys that field. Now, don't push the parable past where it's supposed to go. Don't say that I can get a buck and a quarter for my nationality and three fifty for my traditions and I'm going to scrounge up as much money as I can and buy God. What Jesus is saying here is everything that you have must be exchanged for Jesus. You cannot hold on to anything. You cannot try and buy with anything that you have. And he presses the point home again in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. You see, faith is leaning on Jesus. Faith in Christ is giving up everything we have and trusting only in Him. Not trusting in who our parents are, not trusting in what we have done, not trusting in where we expect to go, but in leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, if we truly value things at their correct value, and we are willing to give up everything that we think has value for Jesus Christ. We will get, Paul says, the real prize. Because you see, he says he did all of this for the sake of Christ. You see, when seen in the light of Jesus Christ, he knows that nothing else has any value. He's, in a sense, repeating for us the story of the rich young ruler. The man who walked up to Jesus and said, I've kept all this from my youth. I pretty much expect to go to heaven. And Paul says, the only thing that's of any value is Jesus Christ. Everything else we must give up. Now, to encourage you, if you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but perhaps you've been a little bit convicted by Paul, not by me, but by Paul, and saying, well, I might be hanging on to a few things. 
I want you to notice the progress that Paul makes in the faith. Look with me if you would. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he says that in the past I placed this amount of confidence in these things. And in verse 7 he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted in the past as loss for Christ. Now let's go to the present. In verse 8, Indeed, I count, present tense, everything. Not just whatever. Everything. And how does he count it? Does he count it as loss? No. He counts it as rubbish. He counts it as worse than loss. We'll get into more of this next week, but the word here for rubbish is a very vivid word. It's garbage. It's human waste. It's not just that Paul lost something good. He had to get rid of something that was harmful, that he shouldn't have had around. You see how he's moving to the next level? And he did this for the sake of Christ in verse 7. And look at verse 8. For Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, Paul grew in the faith. You can too. The way we find growth is not in who we are, or what we do, or what we plan. The way we find growth is by leaning upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting to Him in all that we do, from beginning to end. 